friends and enemies it's episode 281 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always and we are elated excited all of the most positive words to be joined by meredith whitaker who is just a a dear close friend of the show um multiple times returning guest now um which i'm i'm always proud i'm always proud and honored to have meredith on the podcast to count meredith as a friend um but also because i mean meredith you've just been like uh hitting grand slams back to back with some of the work that you've been just dropping out of nowhere on surprise oh you're you're not busy enough with your day job and being a uh you know an ardent poster and <laughs> it's like you're also just just dropping the most uh original rigorous uh and and necessary work um the, the imaginable so so Meredith, thanks thanks for coming on first of all well, that is very kind, and I am honored to be here. I am a longtime listener um, and a big fan of the pod and delighted to be called a friend, and hello. <laughs> I love I love starting episodes with a love fest. You know, it sets yeah. the tone um, because you know That's we nice. are a bunch of haters on this podcast. But it does you know it's friends and enemies, right? But it's good to have friends. everything for your friends, nothing for your enemies. You know, that's good right. Principle. That's right. Yeah, not calling them in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but so. We've been trying to get you on for a little while to talk about your your piece in Logics on Charles Babbage, the history of kind of uh, of plantational logics and mechanisms of control that were baked that have been baked into the early days of computational um, design and and logics and industrial control, and so just. We will talk about all that, but in the midst of us like scheduling for that episode, you also just dropped out of nowhere. Um, one of the best uh, materialist analyses of the of artificial intelligence and the kind of infrastructural and ideological scaffolding around it. And so, I think we've got a really nice kind of historical and contemporary bridge to build in this discussion. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about this and i guess for me like both of those come from the same place like an unsettled annoyance that like something doesn't seem right about the stories that i'm hearing repeated um and I, yeah having to scratch that itch until suddenly there's a paper and it's not just notes um and you know then one of your co-authors is struggling with latex and then it's out there yeah, yeah. Well, let's start with Charles Babbage then, because um, th- this is great. Because this paper, the the your article in Logics actually dropped when I was doing a bit of teaching. I was teaching like a um, an intro to 
information technology and society course for first year students. And the first, like the first half of that, that, that unit is essentially just history. So there's some lectures on the history of hardware, lectures on the history of software. I mean, like, let's actually look at where these things have come from and, and the kind of the, the development of information technology, right? It didn't just drop out of nowhere. And so in the, the history of hardware, uh, you know, I, I bring them back and I talk about um, Babbage and I talk about the Jacquard's loom and all of this as kind of prefiguring, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the, com- the typical setup of computers with memory and processing and all of that. The Jacquard's loom is, you know, and Ada Lovelace says is kind of proto software. And then your, your, your paper dropped, um, right in the middle when I was doing those lectures. And so it was so great to read that because I had always known that Babbage was, you know, one of these, early industrial elites kind of figures right he you know he wasn't just you know the it wasn't just the the computer genius that is his um his reputation now like that was of course ensconced within the the kind of the the context of that time period but i had absolutely no idea because i've i've never gone back and actually read Babbage's treaties on machinery and manufacturing which you did but I really had no idea how much of a a, a, a ghoul <laughs> this guy is, and and how much of like all of this stuff that we critique around the like the logics of computation and the political economy of of technology, um, like all of that was from the very beginning part of these designs. So, like, I guess what brought you to Babbage in the first place, and you know, as somebody you wanted to dig deeper into? Yeah, I mean. I had avoided it for a long time because there's a a kind of dry anodyne history of computing that was my primary exposure to Babbage and the sort of, you know, the lineage of great men who sort of increased processing speeds uh, over time and aren't we proud. Um, And that, you know, dropping into tech, into the tech industry in 2006, like right out of Berkeley where I was doing, you know, kind of critical theory, like the, you know, post-structuralism, the stuff that as an undergrad, you just suffer through. Um, I, you know, I was, I sort of dropped into Google in like the middle of these, you know, the, the, like the heart of the hype, there was just no, it was like a suffocating hubris and a real, like, like techno determinism. We all know that story, but that was kind of my first exposure to like the story of what computers are, what they do, what this industry is doing. So I had to kind of reverse engineer that out of a, just a kind of a basic discomfort with like, okay, well, how do we define our terms? And once you start pulling a thread, then the entire sweater unravels and you're like, what are we actually looking at? And so my knowledge of Babbage was like the computer history museum 101 right like wall text and i thought he's like the computer guy and i realized like i had read capital a long long time ago but i don't think i connected that the babbage marx was talking about was the computer guy right so um a couple of years ago i was reading braverman um and he had like a you know there's a chapter on babbage and the babbage principle which is you know basically as a, as a capitalist, if you divide labor into smaller sections, you can attribute to each of those smaller sections of a given task, like a low skilled status. 
So you gain the power to define the worker who is completing a task in each bucket as low skilled by sort of dividing it into simpler actions that different workers can sort of, um, you know, each accomplish and thus you can justify paying them more. And this was, you know, Braverman's talking about this. And I had this note that I remember like taking on the train where I like circled Babbage's name and I had like computer guy question mark. Um, and Braverman is like comparing him to Taylor. And I'm like, this is really interesting because if he is the computer guy and he's linked to Taylor in this way that I didn't know because I kind of came through tech to acquire my you know colloquial version of these histories, then like, you know, I know that through Caitlin Rosenthal's work in accounting for slavery, like Taylor was prefigured by plantations. So like, maybe I can do something with me this, maybe I can develop some like atmospherics, at least that meditate on the relationship of the plantation to computation through this sort of link, however abstract it might be, right? And I kind of started digging into this. And then what I got was like, not abstract at all. Like it was extremely concrete, the ways that, you know, labor division was, you know, and, and industrial mechanisms of worker control were prefigured to control enslaved people on the plantation. There's a lot of documentation of this. Um, and that, you know, surveillance, labor division, you know, kind of quantification and the like, you know, setting of quotas, this, you know, things that we see supercharged in say Amazon warehouses now were, you know, those were plantation technologies. And that what we see in Babbage, if we look at, you know, on the economy of machinery and manufacturers, which is his like, his like treaties on how capitalists can better control labor, which were based on workshop tours he did through the, you know, during the early 1800s, with the goal of figuring out how to improve mechanical techniques such that he could build his engines. His, and his engines are the computers, the templates for computation that he, he never, he designed them, he never built them, but they are like the first, the, the prototypes for modern computation. And they're actually like strikingly similar to systems that we were using up to the seventies. Uh, so anyway, like what I began to see was like, the links were not atmospheric, right? Like this is not a vague hand wavy, like I'm not doing kind of a beautiful scholarly essay, right? Like this <laughs> shit was right in your face. It was extremely clear. And it took me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a slow worker at the beginning, because I have to establish footing that makes me confident that those links are like, real before I can like, uh, sit with an idea and then let it kind of percolate and germinate. Um, but that happened pretty quickly for this. And then it was just two years of me like going back through some of the most boring primary sources, I can like reading this guy's like, you know, treaties on how like, you know, I don't, what was the Bridgewater, like how, it, like he has a kind of try to, a mathematical proof of miracles. There's just all of this. And there's like a lot more there. He was like running on a Benthamite platform for parliament during the reform era, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, like the, the anxiety around, you know, how do we control labor? How do we control labor in an age of abolition where for a number of reasons, you know, primary among them was that, you know, enslaved people rebelled constantly rising the you know, price of or the you know, decreasing the profits of enslaving people in the British West Indies, you know, there was a real anxiety, how do you control labor such that we can maintain our status as empire? How do you control domestic white labor in Britain, which for 100 years rebelled against enclosures and industrialization and the, you know, extraction and, and, you know, coercion that was happening there. And those, you know, those two issues were coming to a head right as Babbage was, you know, both pursuing building his engines 
you know, and as he was, you know, developing these theories of labor control, which you see reflected directly in the, you know, in the architectures of the engines. Yeah, one of the really interesting, you know, sections, I think I also didn't anticipate reading it was like the really in-depth discussion you open up, kind of thinking through how freedom is articulated you know, what are some of the legal boundaries for or legal instruments that are used to think through it, to circumscribe it, to expand it or to deny it? You know, where where do people's ideas of their own agency come from and, and how this all relates to labor? You know, would you be able to talk with us, you know, about that section as it relates to Babbage? You know, like where is he getting, you know, his ideas and his inspiration for how labor should be organized, how humans should be organized. Is this coming out of his work with the machines? Is his work with the machines coming out of these theories? Or are there, are there more, you know, fundamental influences and experiences that kind of push him in the direction that, you know, we can regiment uh, humanity and we should, and, 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 and these are the ways to do it. Well, he was a utilitarian and he was like, throughout his life, he was sort of increasingly radical in his utilitarianism to the point that toward the end of his life, he was, you know, he was assured and uh, yeah, that capitalism and democracy could not coexist and he chose capitalism. Um, so I think, you know, there's some deeper reading I could do on like, what is the genesis of his, you know, of the subject position he assumes labor to have? What is he, you know, what is, what is going on there? I don't have a clean answer to that, but what I, what I did observe in all of his writings is, you know, there is a very familiar from anyone who reads the kind of text eye view of the world, like the world, including the humans in it, including its processes and its, you know, fractal and magic and, you know, everything about existence is like, it is a, you know, he speaks on the level of abstractions, on the level of processes he can control. There's a very utilitarian kind of perspective in all of his writing and he sees you know he's always you know he's always looking through the lens of the capitalist he's always looking you know when he talks about you know when he uses terms like benefits right we can assume that you know he is seeing unalloyed profits as a benefit and he would see you know workers organizing to demand redistribution of those profits as a hindrance to you know, such a benefit, right? So there's a framework that exists within all of his writing that is implicit and that's anything that is good for, you know, capitalists and for the maintenance of this, you know, capitalist, you know, this emerging capitalist system for the sort of, you know, for that system to take its place, establish itself as sort of a governing principle in, you know, the UK and, and beyond, we would need to sort of adopt, um, you know, adopt these industrial mindsets and see workers as, you know, effectively commodities to be controlled right now he was modul like I, what i don't want to do is make an easy equivalence like so this brought slavery to the uk like this that's not what was happening right like the brutality of slavery and the dehumanization that was meted out to enslaved black people was very different than what was happening you know in the uk to white workers who were you know having their liberties infringed but you didn't see you know like torture and brutality and the you know, ro you know, kind of reflexive dehumanization weren't, you know, practices of control that were exercised. But what was transferred was basically this sort of, you know, you, well, okay, on the one hand, you had, you know, slavery, which was by the time he was writing abolitionism was a pretty common sense 
position, you know, kind of the through the kind of liberal strain of, you know, the free market can do better. Uh, slavery is sort of a retrograde mercantilist sort of, you know, art up um, a vestige of the past. And Britain had outlawed the slave trade in 2000. Uh, sorry, not 2000, um, eight, 1807. And so there was a real anxiety that if we outlawed the slave trade as Britain and no one else does, then like they're going to benefit and we aren't. And this was one of the, you know, one of the anxieties leading up to their abolishing slavery in the West Indies. Um, but there was, you know, so you had slavery. It was more or less, you know, kind of condemned um, on, you know, sometimes for like honest humanitarian reasons, many times not. Um, and then you had this problem of how do we sort of redefine conscripted, difficult, precarious, you know, you know painful laboring as freedom, right? And so in one way, like slavery was the was the condition, the comparative condition against which you could say like, whatever that is, that's not slavery, so this is freedom, right? You also had the kind of emergence of the contract as a mechanism of, you know, basically vouching for the fact that, okay, well, this person chose a life of precarious labor because the contract is a, an agreement among equals in which they entered into this agreement willingly. So this speaks to the volatilism of this agreement, right? Which does a lot of erasure of the you know context and coercive conditions that might have pushed people into you know having no choice but to sign a contract or starve, right? The you know the freedom to starve or the freedom to starve in the contract. And I think like Marx speaks a lot about that, like double freedom and, you know, actually Sadia Hartman and her work, you know, scenes of subjection goes into like the role of the contract and kind of, you know, continuing to keep emancipated slaves in the U.S. in bondage. So, it, you know, there's a lot more there on um, how the contract was deployed and how it was, you know, it, it was basically a, a way to be able to call forms of labor that re were structured based on plantation mechanisms of control free because you had this sort of contract vouching for the fact that they freely chose this, they volunteered this, this is a, you know, choice between equals. So there's a real, like, a real indictment of classical liberalism at the heart of that. And actually, I have Amy du Drew Stanley's book from bondage to contracts, like my podcast, mic is sitting on it right now, because it's the next thing I'm reading. Um, so I'm really I'm looking forward to sort of digging into some of these nuances more as I extend this work. Um, and then there's also a way that kind of the the rhetoric of de-skilling that was at the heart of a lot of the project he was looking to accomplish, which is, you know, how do we break up labor into tiny little pieces? Then as capitalists claim the right to define each of those tiny pieces as low skilled and then define skill as, you know, low paid, basically. So you're degrading labor as, you know, this is you know, low skilled people, low skilled wages. These are, you know, kind of worthless, low skilled human beings. And thus we don't have to pay them as much. And, you know, so the contract sort of vouches for like people chose this, this is freedom and skill vouches for like people deserve this, right? So they're low skilled, so they don't actually deserve more, you know, pay or compensation or time off or a beautiful life. They're, you know, low skilled people. And that, you know, that in the sort of framework I'm laying out in the piece is the kind of, that's the overarching kind of mystification that allows, you know, industrialists to labor these, you know, label these extraordinarily hard and kind of um, life effacing labor conditions as, as free. Yeah, that's, it's, it's 
you know, really fascinating, you know, thinking how you've laid it out in that framework, just, you know, thinking through it as like an attempt to, you know, as you talk about, like reapply lessons from slavery, both in how you can organize groups of people, um, you know, and extract as much profit as possible from them, but also like the limits of explicit violence and, and developing tools of implicit violence, right? Like learning maybe violent suppression in of itself is not a tool, but if you have all these like really uh, deep, intricate uh, circumscriptions of uh, the agency and autonomy that people have, and you're, you know, miserating them and you're depriving them of, you know, really any ability to get resources or community or, you know, build up any sort of structure or solidarity outside of the workplace. Then you, you, then when you do need to do violent suppression, you know, which you may not even need to do in the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth instance, but when you do need to do it, it is that much more effective, right? In a way that, you know, I, you know, I would I'd be curious, like what these, what, you know, people who were designing these labor regimes were also thinking at the time where they're like, okay, well, we thought like, you know, violence would crush all the unruly slave revolt. And in fact, like it worked, it was disastrous, you know, and, and France lost their crown jewel and we're losing our crown jewels. Like what methods can we use to corral people both to believe that they're entering into the system voluntarily, but also to dispossess them of like tools and, you know, you know, networks and organizations that might allow them to like effectively uprise against this. Um, and in that light, you know, this transformation and also the, the like mystification and the you know, overlook of Babbage's role feels even more glaring, right? Because this is like a key part of, you know, the question and the desire to figure out like, you know, why given some of like the even more, you know, long-term erosions and egregious violations of people's autonomy that have like been ported over from plantation logic onto market logic you know why is it even does it feel even harder to articulate how serious these violations are to to, to you know to get some people to agree with um at this day you know after the long war on labor but you know, why, why has it been hard to also articulate the ways in which, you know, like as people on the eve of the Civil War would talk about, like how, you know, chattel slavery and wage slavery in of themselves are both inspired by the idea that, you know, men are in, you know, should not be in control of themselves and their own destinies, right? And industrials and capitalists should be in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, and you saw at the end of you know, the Civil War, you had, you know, and I'm sure listeners are familiar with the history of Reconstruction and, and the tragedy there, but you saw um, kind of the instantiation of a um, contract laborer you know, role that was very similar to enslavement, right? And and you had the black codes and you had a number of, you know, ways of, you know, re-enlisting or, you know, coercive re-enlisting of, you know, formerly enslaved people, um, you know, black people back into coerced labor in the plantations. And uh, if you have, you know, the West Indies after British abolition, you also had sort of a period of what they called apprenticeship, which was basically like, okay, well, you know, you're emancipated, but you have to keep working uh, because we're going to, you know, and it was, it was based on all these, you know, you know, horribly racist and also strategically convenient tropes around like, well, we have to, you know, bring people who aren't as well-developed into society. We have to socialize folks so we can't just open the floodgates, right? Um, and then you had uh, indentured labor being brought in from South Asia to replace um, you know, 
the workers on the sugar plantations in the East you know, West Indies. So what you know what happened was not sort of a clean break in either case. What happened was a sort of transformation in you know at least rhetorically of those uh, labor relationships and a you know a softening of the language, but not necessarily a softening of the um, you know the the behavior and the you know in the West Indies in particular um, kind of the 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 violence. I mean, well, in the U.S. and the West Indies, you had violence continuing, um, but you know you had you had a recognition that there was a rhetorical change needed, but, you know, ways of sort of subbing in forms of uh, domination that looked like, you know, very similar to the previous forms of domination, but they were, you know, renamed. Um, I think, you know, we need to recognize that, you know, uh, the, you know, chattel slavery and the transatlantic, you know, slave trade. Also, I believe, you know, in my merging analysis and you know it was necessary to guarantee this very tenuous definition of freedom that was then sort of you know forced on slash sold to the white working class in the uk right so they you know they they you know they were miserable conditions this was you know terrible work they were constantly rebelling right you know the contract guaranteed some notion of volunteerism the you know the the notion of skill you know made people you know, kind of classified them as less deserving and thus, you know, this is the natural order of thing, you know, um, but, you know, they weren't enslaved. They weren't enslaved black people. They were different than that. And thus, you know, this sort of abject form of domination was a kind of guarantor for, you know, the classification of freedom that was then applied to um, gentler forms of domination that nonetheless were sort of perfecting and, and um, replicating modes of control that were developed in the plantation. And I think there's, you know, there's some work to be done in the present for how those, you know, continued racism and continued kind of those, those continued classifications work to um, justify uh, forms of, of domination in, in the present as well. Yeah, I mean, th this is one of the things that really is striking, I think, about this, uh, you know, case study and case figure that you've dug out here as well, because it is, it is truly this like historical smoking gun, um, for these more kind of theoretical arguments, uh, about like how these logics persist or how we can see the politics of, of slavery and the politics of plantations baked into contemporary systems. Like these kinds of arguments that, ring true, but they often ring theoretical or ring abstract in some way. Whereas here we actually have the, like the historical smoking gun where you've got the, like, like a person, a really, really famous, well-known person um, who is actively trying to manage that transition, actively trying to um, create and justify and argue for specific technologies, both mechanical technologies, but also social technologies like the labor contract um, as ways of, cre of, of creating this transition and explicitly being like, this is not a clean break, you know, and, and that's our kind of that's our fallacy of like epochal thinking in history as well, where there are like these clean breaks that happen where you go from like a feudal system to a, a plantation system to a, a capitalist system. And you know, that like you go from uh, pre-industrial to industrial to post-industrial like there, but that's not like, 
like these are not clean breaks. These are analytical distinctions, but in reality, it's all happening along this continuum. It's all a process. It's it's dialectical in that sense, right? That like every system contains its contradiction, and it's constantly trying to wrestle with and and maintain those contradictions within it, and and subsume what seems to be contradictions between a feudal system and a capitalist system. That they actually exist very you know, next to each other and nestled within each other. And you have people like Babbage who are actively doing that work of maintaining these contradictions, of sustaining the system and the transition. It's a really, also a really great case study of how like, uh, that the, the kind of the, the bourgeois propaganda, right? That like the, the, the kind of the rewriting of these histories such that like the idea that there's e- these epochal breaks is a revisionist view of history designed to make us think we have left those things behind, that they are not part of the system that we live in now. And so why are you complaining? Why do you keep bringing it up? Why do you keep raising these issues? That's the past. That's the sins of our forefathers right like um and but that's a very revisionist way of understanding it and it, it eliminates the the life's work of someone like Babbage, right? Um, that like this wasn't just a, a hobby of his. This was his life's work um, was maintaining this transition, creating the technologies to ensure that the British Empire can uh, maintain itself, can continue expanding and growing as a industrial power. Um, and instead, you know how I know that ba- like my first introduction to Babbage was uh, that's what GameStop used to be called. It was called called Babbage's. Uh, like that was the original name of game. Damn it, Jason. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. But I remember, I remember distinctly going to Babbage's with my dad to buy video games in the nineties. Um, and that's, and, but it, that's, that's what GameStop used to be called. And that's how my first, like, that's how I got to know who Babbage was. Oh, that's the guy who the video game store is named after. <laughs> you can play the lace workers game. And meanwhile, while Jathan's dad's shaking into that store, me and my hooligan friends shoplift almost every video game we ever got from that store. <laughs> we had a, we had a system, man. And I, I'm glad knowing what a bastard Babbage was. I'm kind of glad we did. It just goes to show like, Capitalists are always going to keep trying to do what they they're going to do, and they're always going to go to links. It seems like to to obfuscate how they've maintained capital over these years and sell it to people in new and different ways. But in reality, it's all the same bullshit. Yeah, mm. a lot of stories. And that's why history is so important. I'm looking forward to your book getting banned in Southern states if you ever write <laughs> one, Meredith. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't. I wouldn't trust a book not banned in some states at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think like to the smoking gun point, like you know, I was as I said anticipating like kind of a theoretical turn, right? I was like interested in this stuff when I, you know, and wanted to see if there was like a path that led between them, or at least suggested some path between them. What I did not again anticipate was that like the designs for the architecture of modern computation, which Babbage along with Ada Lovelace created, were directly drawn from plantation technologies of labor control, right? They were, you know, they were envisioned these sort of engines and and the analytical engine was, you know, sort of the, the 
kind of design. It was never built because, again, Babbage couldn't find, you know, mechanical techniques and and workmen who were able to work with the precision at that time needed to build the like hugely complex and and intricate component parts. But there were designs. He had, you know, a huge workshop. He actually, you know, his first set of engines, the difference engines, the project was scrapped and ended because he had a labor dispute with his engineer Clement uh, over credit. And uh, who was going to, you know, is, is, you know, reap the payments from, you know, w- this engine being built? But you know, his engines were initially envisioned as ways to replace the labor of mathematicians who were building navigational tables for the uh, British Navy, and that was the justification by which he got huge grants from, you know, the British government. He was like, "Look, our navy defends empire. These, you know, flawed navigational tables that are created mathematically by hand." Are causing a lot of shipwrecks. That's bad for empire. Let's see if we can build a machine that would automate this. So like at the outside, at, at the jump, these were envisioned as technologies of, of labor replacement, labor automation. They were also, you know, and this, this spans both sets of engines, the difference and analytical engines, but they were both, you know, designed in a way that increased their expense and kind of made them even less feasible than they would have been uh, otherwise to kind of surveil the workers who would be tending them. So there were, you know, kind of reflexive surveillance capacities that would like print out work mid mid stage to check it, you know, thus also being able to check, you know, who was the worker tending it. Um, and it was, you know, they were all very clearly envisioned, you know, based on a system of labor division that was, um, kind of created in France after the revolution, there was a large project to, you know, um, I I won't go too into those details, but there was an effort to, you know, create a large set of mathematical tables. How do we do this? Well, we, you know, we, we can create these log tables by having kind of, you know, a small set of the smartest mathematicians at the top designing processes for a, you know, slightly bigger set in the middle that are then executed by um, former hairdressers of the aristocracy who need to know nothing but how to add and subtract, but are kind of the, you know, the precarious laborers, the bulk of the workers there who would be, you know, doing this addition and subtraction. And Babbage actually took the template and the kind of inspiration for his first set of engines through you know directly from this french labor process with the direct intention of replacing that lower set of workers so the majority of the workers would then be replaced by this you know machine the difference engine and the difference engine would you know be tended by some workers that would be surveilled through these reflexive surveillance processes all of this of course built on sort of surveillance and labor division regimes that were you know first kind of created, perfected, sort of trialed on the plantation. The 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 constant thread, it feels like, or one of the many constant threads, it's been this insistence that we need s- surveillance in our computation, our machinery. And, you know, today in debates about, you know, corporate surveillance and surveillance in general, there's a lot of, you know, arguments about how, well, we can eliminate the racial bias and then that will make the surveillance fine. We can eliminate, you know, some of the concerns about where the database of uh, faces are, is, is and that can eliminate concerns. But constantly still like overlooking, you know, the the core reason why surveillance is, is problematic. And I think also, you know, as I think your work lays out the fact that without the argument for surveillance, 
um, a lot of the rational rationale for building these machines in these specific ways and, and, and plugging them into the labor process where they are or plugging them into the political economy where they are falls apart, right? Do you, do you feel that, you know, in the research that you've seen here and also in your observations in the in discourse today, that there is or has been an understanding that we have to avoid talking about surveillance in certain ways or try to make the, a debate about surveillance something else to avoid a larger discussion about why it is that surveillance is so central to the way that we're designing most of the technology we have today? Yeah, I mean, I have actually been spending a lot of time recently, you know, kind of as part of my day job. And I'm, you know, I'm also genuinely interested just like looking at the history of the what are called the crypto wars in the 90s, you know, from so you have kind of from the late 80s through sort of 99 is the periodization that's most common. But this was a, you know, this was a big fight between roughly like the nascent tech industry, which was going to be unleashed by the Clinton era sort of commercialization of networked computation, like the internet at that time. Um, so the tech industry, sort of technologists, roughly like cryptographers and, you know, this sort of um, the the label is like cypherpunks um, and, you know, civil libertarians on one side. And then, you know, the national security state, law enforcement and, you know, the roughly the government on the other. And this fight is, you know, told as a fight, you know, for kind of privacy, freedom, um, you know, free enterprise, uh, the ability to kind of innovate without kind of centralized government control on the one hand. So, you know, why should the NSA and the government have a monopoly on encryption? Why should encryption be, you know, regulated as a munition that you need a, you know, kind of a license to export? Um, this will hamper U.S. industry as we look to unleash the uh, economic uh, potential of network computation. In, you know, and this is the Clinton era, so this is a very neoliberal frame, right? Like every document you read starts with like the market knows best, private industry knows best, government should get off their necks. You know, this is, you know, this is, this is the Kool Aid at this time. But there was, you know, there was a sort of fight during that period that kind of shaped how we talk about privacy and surveillance now. And this fight was, you know, kind of between those actors, right, with industry very conspicuously on the side of, you know, we want to be able to develop encryption using rhetoric of sort of privacy and, and liberty and freedom to defend this. Now, what was also happening in parallel at that time? Well, there, you know, the reins and the leash was being taken off of the tech industry as the framework to commercialize the internet was being developed, right? And so you had surveillance advertising, the sort of behavioral advertising business model, the kind of ad supported, you know, basically surveillance advertising was being, you know, kind of developed and trialed and, you know, not necessarily perfected, but the infrastructures for, you know, this massive surveillance apparatus that we now live under was also being set in place under the name of innovation, under the name of, you know, the free market, et cetera. And I think, you know, in 1999, the Clinton administration deregulated encryption, right? They took it off the munitions list, the commerce, commerce control list. They were like, okay, y'all can have it. You can put your little encryption because it's, you know, we do need safe transactions. We do need the U.S. tech companies to dominate globally. They got to be able to ship this stuff. So, okay, you all, you all won. And, you know, the civil libertarians took a real victory lap that is still echoes with us today. But I think that basic kind of dichotomy has really warped or, or that, you know, the fact that we had 
a surveillance apparatus being built in private industry that we learned, you know, through the 2010s, the NSA and the government was like, like drank, drank their fill at the well of that data, right? Like, you know, Microsoft was backdooring Outlook. You had, you know, the NSA giving RSA $10 billion to put like a backdoor in their random number generator. There's, <laughs> pardon me, I'm excited. coughing um but you had you know through the 2010s there was like you know the law enforcement government had more data than they could get their hands on via these partnerships with industry who were unleashed to surveil everywhere and you know yet you still had this sort of vision that we had defended privacy that that wasn't quite surveillance because it happened in the market that you could trust market actors to know about us because you know somehow there was an exchange and so they would only know about us but for our benefit um and so i think I think we have a, you know, I think that's a very long answer to say we have a very impoverished understanding of what surveillance is. We think about it as a technical affordance. We don't think about it as a power relationship. And I don't think we recognize like how deep information asymmetry uh, is or how how core information asymmetry is as a tool of social control. And so, you know, here we are with a vast surveillance apparatus where we've handed over not only surveillance powers, but like the authority to define us to a handful of corporate actors who are now, you know, essentially sort of the infrastructure for our government as well. Um, at least if you count, you know, their super PACs. So. Is there even a good analysis of like that period of of the collaboration between the tech sector and the NSA and, you know, all the, the various um, intelligence agencies that were allowed to backdoor all these, these infrastructure? The best I find, found, which was actually via uh, Sarah Myers West, who passed this to me a couple of weeks ago, was... Um, Karina Ryder's work that looks at, you know, the, the crypto wars period, but is actually sort of analyzing like, look, I don't think we won as cleanly as we said we won. Um, and I'm sort of, I'm reading that in conversation right now with Matthew Crane's work, um, his book, uh, Profit Over Privacy, which sort of documents the commercialization process. So um, I will probably write this at some point because I'm now bothered in the same way that I feel myself bothered when i'm about to write something <laughs> yeah i feel you i feel you on that. <laughs> um, but i do think we need to flip we need to tell a different story because the story we've told has i think meant that we didn't you know we didn't guard our winnings we didn't actually win and we actually sort of ceded so much ground that we have, have these sort of legalistic and impoverished definitions of things that mm. um miss the point or our definition. I will. I'll, I'll give a quick shout out as well to a, a book that just came out a couple of months ago by Lee McGuinn um, called "Selling the American People: Advertising Optimization and the Origins of Ad Tech." And it's specifically looking at advertising technology, but it's it is it is trying to trace this history uh, uh, like back through all the way back to data driven surveillance in the in the nineteen fifties around advertising and stuff as well. So uh, yeah, Lee McGuinn, um, Selling the American People, MIT Press. It just came out like last month. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a brand new book. And I, I only know of it because I know some of Lee's uh, collaborators. <laughs> and but, apologies but, to the listeners for that noise because that was me typing that into <laughs> my browser so I can grab it later. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there's just... But but it's to say that there is like there is this this big gap in still this knowledge, right? Like so much of our um, analysis is very contemporary. I mean, for example, like Donald McKenzie, um, who 
Sorry, we who, whose book we tried to read as a book club. It was just too. <laughs> it's too I followed, too much. and then I really felt it because I I read that book by myself. Like most of my education was me reading by myself, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, this is this is quite a book." Yeah, <laughs> it's good it's very dense and it, it's just hard to, like, to talk about it, it was not yeah. conducive for a book club uh, we were trying to read and yeah. like, yes. talk with each other about as we read for sure though <laughs> i think my notes were about as long as the book by the end like <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but i only bring it up because donald mckenzie just had a, a new paper come out in social studies of science on the material politics of header bidding um, and online advertising. And so all that's to say is that like, there's, there's a lot of like really in-depth technical research coming out, like trying to dig into contemporary systems, but mm-hmm. like, do we still need to understand how these are like couched in these like really historical developments as well? They didn't just come out of nowhere. Right. Um, and, and it's not like conspiratorial <laughs> at all. It's like baked into the design. I mean, to bring it back to Babbage. And then I do want to get us into the contemporary period and talk about open AI, for example, or the political economy mm-hmm. of quote unquote open AI, um, your, your new paper. But to just quickly bring it back to Babbage as a, as a last moment as well. I mean, like, you know, I love that that detail that you guys were talking about in the paper around like how Babbage worked the these kind of surveillance systems into the designs for these machines, these early engines, despite the fact that they uh, made the machine technically worse, right? It made it like more onerous to use, more difficult to to operate, more expensive to build, and and but he was like so dedicated to no surveillance of the worker has to be part of this machine right and so it's like we can see like these are real these are like literally the choices we talk about when mm-hmm. we're like you know these choice these values are baked into the design of these technologies and it's often like very abstract again but here we like literally have the father of computing being like no this is the choice that must be baked into the design of these technologies and and our understanding of them and 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 it's also i think worth uh couching this in, in the broader context that like this was a a really unpopular position and opinion to have and i like that you bring that out as well like you um i'll, I'll quote a little bit from the uh, article where you write that uh, the goals his work set out to achieve assume profits for emerging capitalists are an unalloyed good, while anything that would interrupt these is an obstacle to be eliminated. In this, he was aligned with many of his fellow British elites. During the early 19th century, the question of how to discipline labor in the context of worker unrest at home and impending abolition of British slavery in the West Indies was a pressing one. The future of the British Empire relied on an answer that maintained the Productive capacity required to sustain its economic position. Here, it helps to remember that championing industry and capitalism was not a common sense position during the early to mid 19th century when Babbage was working. And you outline, like, you know, we talk about the the um, the 
the slave revolts that are happening at this time. There's also, as you talk about, a lot of labor rebellions and, and riots and unrest. This is contemporaneous with the Luddites, our favorite group, right? Um, who Babbage, <laughs> and you note Babbage had particular disdain for the Luddites. Um, and, and so, you know, this was a time period where you have, you know, arguably the, the, uh, the most famous poet at that time, right? Lord Byron doing, you know, writing odes to the Luddites. Um, and yet you have someone like Charles Babbage who, you know, is, is remaining stalwart in, 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 in what is a exceedingly unpopular opinion that no, this is the way forward. This is what must happen. And everybody else is wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong, you know, and, and history would prove him to be correct, but not because of some inevitable way, but in the same way that the Luddites were proven to be losers, it was because it was the state finally stepped in to quell these rebellions, shore <laughs> up the capitalist, uh, and, and, and ensure that Babbage's position was the winning position. Yeah. I mean, we all had to sign a contract at some point saying he's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think, wouldn't it have been great if he'd taken an ethics class? <laughs> he graduated. Well, he did. It was it was taught by Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do and love that you will never get rid of the utilitarian ghost, right? You know, then they're over there creating these machines, and today they're hypothesizing about how we can convert an entire solar mass into a, a matriosha brain to host ten to the seventy three trillion souls in electronic <sighs> nirvana forever, ever, ever, ever. ever. Well then, so from the insane utilitarians of yesteryear to the insane utilitarians of today, let's get into AI, right? I mean, I'm so... I am, we have talked so much about it this year. I feel like, like this, doing this podcast has like hyper attuned me to, and it's hard for me to tell, like, has it always been this way or is it just like this way or like very recently? But doing this podcast where we talk about, uh, where we have to talk about what's happening every single week, um, has really attuned me to like the hype cycle and how much, you know, things just completely dominate our discourse, our thinking, finance, and policy. Uh, like one thing dominates until it just goes away. So it's like you know we it's it, it's you know we talked for for like two years nonstop about Web three and crypto, right? And then like we had all the best experts and journalists and academics on to talk about that, and and now it's like. I'm so tired of talking about AI, but it's like something that we have to keep talking about um, because it's we don't we don't get to choose <laughs> what we what we have to be concerned about. Unfortunately, other people are choosing that for us, um, and and but I, I will say that in a in a a landscape that has com become completely saturated 
by people repeating themselves over and over, by people um, saying the the oftentimes elevating like the lamest takes possible, um, where it's just like panels and panels upon people uh, parroting the same um, you know concerns and celebrations around AI. Um, none of them uh, very material in their in in their in their tone. All of them exceedingly idealist. Uh, I I told you uh, in in a message, Meredith, that I'm so fucking tired, like sick and tired of all these motherfucking futurists out here <laughs> with absolutely zero materialism, just like you know, spewing whatever comes out of their mind palace, and then we all have to talk about it. And so, I was very pleased to see you drop. Um, with Sarah Myers West, who's a, a, a past guest and friend of the show, as well as with David Gray Witter, um, whose work I'm new to, but uh, I'm really enjoying. Um, but I was very pleased to see you drop this this article out of nowhere on the political economy of quote unquote open AI and the kind of the concentration of power in big tech and and while you kind of set up the paper as this discussion around the ideology and discourse of open in reality i think the paper is um just a just an extremely detailed materialist analysis of like the ai pipeline right like everything about like from the 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 design uh and the data sets of the ai to the operation and maintenance of the ai um and really laying out like here's what this looks like and it like here's what the actual political economy of these technologies is and and it's a real it's a one-stop shop where i think a lot of people would do really well to stop talking themselves and just read this paper and share it right well, this is what i believe now you know i mean i guess like in a sense i just keep answering the same question that made me reluctantly interested in ai to begin with which is like what is this stuff you know the the sort of genesis of my interest if, if there is one point was a guy from harvard pitching me while i was at google in like 2015 2014 era on a machine learning system an ai system that he claimed would predict gen genocide and i was like wait what like genocide itself is a contested definition like how do you get you know like how do you model genocide how do you take responsibility for like the fact that predictions influence politics how do you you know like what is What's the purpose of such a prediction for whom? Like, you know, all of the most basic questions. And that that was when I realized we were dealing with some real, some real shifty marketing, right? Um, and I think, you know, my my work and my focus has basically been to try to like scratch through this layer of mystified obfuscation, like deep enough that we can begin to talk about the infrastructures and you know, the material and political realities of like, what are these systems doing? Is there even such a thing as AI? And the answer to that is like, effectively, no, it's sort of a, an appellation that at this point in history is being applied to these sort of maximalist, you know, data and compute centric systems that do sort of, you know, probabilistic, you know, they, they predict things and they do that very quickly and, and in ways that are impressive when they do confirm our priors. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, we're looking at, you know, resource intensive systems that exist, you know, in this era very differently than things that were called AI existed in the 1970s or 
the 1950s when the term was coined. And like, I think it's important to point out as a, as a pedant, but also to like trouble the credulity with which this, the idea of AI is so like rapidly accepted by the, the futurist types you, uh, <laughs> you caricature, Jathan, but like, you know, neural nets predated the term AI by about 10 years, right? Like Hibbs was working on those in the 40s and AI was termed, you know, coined as a term by John McCarthy because he wanted to get away from Norbert Wiener. So he was like, well, we need another term that isn't cyber cybernetics because <laughs> we don't want to invite him to the summer workshop, right? Um, so it's been like a marketing term throughout, but it's taken on like a, I think a really, I don't know, a, a very pernicious aura in this, this latest era because, you know, what happened what happened in the early 2010s was a recognition that with the resources that large surveillance firms these sort of ad you know the that surveillance advertising winners right the ones who came out of that 90s you know or or kind of early 2000s established themselves sort of had the you know the positive feedback loop of sort of you know um monopolization that sort of kind of defines that and and uh, telecommunications and, and other businesses that like established them as monopolies in the early 2010s, there was a recognition that with the resources that accrued to them as monopolies, the huge amounts of computational infrastructure, the huge amounts of data, they could make old techniques, old machine learning techniques that were developed in the late 80s, do new things, right? And so it was very advantageous to suddenly hype AI, because they are the only ones ultimately that have the resources at scale to develop and deploy these systems. So if we make AI the new big thing in research labs and you know the cover to wired in sort of our you know discourse around innovation, we are sort of locking in a type of control that allows us to unlock any market we want, that allows us to claim sort of almost omniscient authority over you know defining people's behavior, their classification, their place in life, their access to resources and opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you know what we're looking at is both a material reality these you know these technologies are augured in a type of you know monopolization monopolization of resources that we haven't really seen before and that there is a you know an incredibly powerful discursive intervention that you know has has happened that has you know allowed us to rename monopolization as intelligence to rename concentration of resources as you know, scientific advancement and to, you know, kind of supercharge the tech mythology that grew out of the 2000s as like innovation, data, we're all, you know, just this is science um, in a way that I think is contended then, I contend now, extraordinarily pernicious. Yeah, and, and it requires having an actual like material analysis of these systems, like how they work, how they operate, what their con like con context is to to realize, as you uh, argue in the in the article, that like it makes no sense to think of them in like another form of software to to apply ideas of like openness or open source or um to apply these arguments that it's like democratizing access to ai by having like open mo open source models whatever that means right like that it makes absolutely no sense in any but in, in any material way um to apply these categories it only makes sense in an ideological 
logical way, which is to say in a a, a meaningless way, right? A, not a meaningful way. That kind of category collapse that sees AI as just another form of software, um, like any other form of software, has has done a ton of work for mm-hmm. the um, for the industry. You know, not you know, obviously, like you know, the the piece is not about or not solely about OpenAI, right? Sam Altman's company, although that is a case study here. Um, but like, it is about like this this what OpenAI started as uh, and had and and became something of an avatar for, and now more of a marketing avatar because it makes no sense for them to even be called OpenAI at, at all, right? Um, but like, what you've got other companies that are actually trying to do like open source AI models, like Hugging Face or or whatever it is. But like, even then, uh, I don't know. Can you can you lay out like why it is that like AI is not like other software and why it makes no sense to apply this category of open source and all the uh, all of the principles and ideals that flow from it why like that just is not applicable to to AI despite um, you know companies actually claiming and trying to say well we have open source models yeah absolutely and I I think you know, before that, I'll just note that this kind of push for open AI, the, you know, open source AI or open in quotes AI, you know, we started seeing a lot of heat around this about a year ago was when I noticed it, you started having kind of position papers written. And that was, you know, right as you have the EU's AI Act and a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure and actual movement to regulate AI. So open source AI as a kind of, you know, again, it's this sort of ideology of open source software that is then like slapped like a sticker onto AI, which looks nothing like open source software. But since most people aren't sort of digging into the details of these systems, they're like, okay, well, it must, you know, if it says it, it must be it. And so there's, you know, by the transitive property, you have this this different kind of AI that should not be subject to these rules, that should not be looked at as anti-competitive, that somehow has an escape velocity from the, you know, concentrated power of the tech industry such that we don't have to worry about that concentrated power in the same way. So there was, you know, if it's not everyone who's working to try to, you know, make AI systems more you know, scrutable. So, you know, you can make them more, you know, transparent is a word I really don't like, but let's just say, you know, transparent for, uh, we'll just use it, right? Like you can, you can look at the source code of the model, you can look at the training data, the weights are published, you know, other facts about the provenance of the data are published, you know, you can get information on what are the ingredients that went into building these systems, you can also make, you know, you can license them, such that they it's permissible to reuse them without restrictions, which is sort of an open source thing, right? So I can take a, a model that's already been built off the shelf, and then as a third party who maybe didn't have the infrastructure to train that model, build it myself, I can, you know, use it for another purpose, right? Um, or I can, you know, take that model off the shelf, and then I can, 
you know, do something that's called tuning, which is basically kind of calibrating that pre-built model for a more specific purpose. So say I'm an insure tech company, right? And I want it to do, you know, some type of actuarial magic. Well, I can take kind of a pre-built model off the shelf and I can, you know, then tune it with some actuarial data and make it work for my purposes, right? And those are, you know, those are the things that the stuff we're calling open source AI can do to some extent to want, you know, in some degrees, it's like almost nothing, right? People are calling software or calling these things open AI when they're doing none of that. And then there are, you know, I would say more earnest efforts like a Luther AI, which are, you know, actually trying to go as far as possible on, you know, pushing, trans- you know, making it transparent, making it, you know, reusable and making it extensible, right? Now, what that doesn't do is level the playing field in the AI industry, like at all, right? Because in order to create these models, right, not just take one that's already created off the shelf, I need huge amounts of computational infrastructure. Like the barrier that OpenAI, Microsoft's OpenAI division is facing right now is a lack of GPUs, a lack of compute to be able to train their next model, right? Like even they can't get their hands on enough of this stuff, right? So you also need data, like more data, the better. And, you know, this is a, this is just a brute force race to scale. So it's like, well, we have more GPUs that are going to train this, like, you know, we have 11 trillion T tokens, a quadrillion T tokens, right? Like, it's just, you know, it's, it is simply kind of a, like dumb boys race to scale, right? There isn't that <laughs> much magic. Um, sorry, that, you know, dumb boys are nice too. I, I just like this, like, it, you know, it's just a measuring contest in some sense. Um, And, you know, that data isn't, you know, one, it's not easy to come by, but there are openly available training data sources, like, you know, the pile, which was created by a Luther AI is a big source. There's a common crawl, which is sort of a web archive that is uh, Amazon makes available to folks. And so you can take that data, but you can't just use it off the shelf, right? There's actually like a really labor intensive process to sort of curate it, make it, you know, amenable, sort of like mix in the right spices and, and curation such that it can be used for training one of these models. Um, And that is, you know, very labor intensive. So that's not, you know, again, there is no level playing field there. And then the actual kind of getting the model to behave according to terms that would make it acceptable for use in a, you know, in a business environment, in a commercial environment that, you know, so it doesn't spew obscenities and, you know, advice for, you know, I don't know, like, you know, so it's not sort of, regurgitating making mustard gas you know or something like that right making mustard gas like putting your finger in a socket like all these things it kind of already does anyway but there is you know if there wasn't this extra you know this sort of calibration phase it wouldn't you know none of these things would even you know look fit for purpose let alone be fit for purpose which i believe none of them actually are anyway but this involves a huge amount of precarious labor like, you know, there's this like fancy sounding term, term reinforcement learning with human feedback, which gets abbreviated to RLHF. And it sounds like a technical term. You're like, oh, reinforcement learning, right? But like what that is, is a labor process. What they're sa- talking about is, you know, thousands of workers. And usually this isn't dis- disclosed. We learn this from investigative journalists or workers themselves who've sort of organized and began, you know, whistleblowing about these conditions, um, you know, have to label this data and then have to, you know, kind of themselves be exposed to often very traumatic and toxic, you know, imagery or content 
in you know in the process of telling the system what is what unacceptable looks like and you have you know real psychological and you know, mental health consequences for this you know workers who've you know just had their lives fall apart because they're not really able to process all of the you know all of the the i you know painful material that they are the like human buffer between you know the the company's you know between the kind of saleability of these systems and the reality of what these systems actually do when they don't have, you know, humans telling them what is intelligent, what is acceptable, like, you know, coaxing them along the way. And then, of course, to use these systems at any scale costs about as much as to train them. So if you're going to deploy a large scale AI model at, you know, at any scale that isn't just sort of a, you know, Inter, you know, kind of an enterprise deployment just for like me and my company or whatever. But if you're actually sort of using it in a product, it's very expensive. The, you know, the cost of like a query to chat GPT is way, way higher than like a just, you know, standard search query. There's a huge amount of compute that goes into what are called like inference, which is, you know, the, the, where I put a prompt into chat GPT or one of these systems, and it does a lot of, you know, computational labor in the background to spit back an answer. And that's very, very expensive. So it's not just like the cost of training, the labor costs, you know, the costs of like, you know, labor and time of curating the data, then there's the cost of this huge labor process that is fundamentally required to make these systems sort of, you know, fit enough for purpose. And then, if you were somehow able to level the playing field on all that, just simply deploying these systems is still cost prohibitive for most actors. So none of that is open in any system that calls itself open source. And it's not going to be opened without a sort of, you know, what we would need to open that would be a redistributive policy, not simply sort of software licensing and, and kind of transparency. Yeah, and and it's like, it's it's stacks and stacks on top of stacks of like this proprietary control and concentrated power because on top of all of that right the like the infrastructural capital needed to train and operate these AI models can you also talk about and this is one of the things that I I think I really pulled out of your paper because I've just not seen it talked about nearly as much and and definitely not in this kind of critical political economic context the frameworks used mm. to build these so we're talking about you know Nvidia's CUDA uh, Meta's PyTorch Google's TensorFlow like can you talk about these frameworks used to um, build these models in the first place not not just the like the hardware infrastructure of like data and compute but yeah can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is actually a really important piece. And I, I kind of gestured at it in a paper I wrote in 2021 around how kind of the lock-in in AI research, right? Like the tools we have to build these systems are themselves, you know, defined and thus define what can be built by the companies who create them. And they're, you know, their infrastructure in, in that we don't notice them, we don't think about them, they are the water in which AI research and development swims. But there are two main, you know, development frameworks. And that is, you know, PyTorch, which is created by Facebook, now called Meta. And there's TensorFlow, which is, you know, created by Google, and both of them are open source. Um, and, you know, both of them, you know, it's in anyone who develops software, like it's, you know, you don't develop every 
function of the software yourself, you're, you know, constantly importing, you know, you're using packages and libraries that that are sort of standard building blocks. This is just, you know, how it works. That allows one, if you're, you know, if you're building something complex, you may not want to do something like roll your own crypto, you know, encryption, right? Very easy to get wrong, very hard to get right. So if someone's already done that, you, you know, grab an encryption algorithm off the shelf and you plug it in and, you know, that's that's great and that you know helps with standardization it helps with interoperability and it's just you know a lot of this is you know at this point software development is often just kind of like pulling in abstract packages and and frameworks and not you know not writing a lot of it yourself which again i think does contribute to this kind of abstracted view that is the you know the the kind of affect of the futurist um and in, in, it's no different in AI, right? So if you're, you know, developing AI, this, you know, PyTorch and, and TensorFlow respectively offer you different frameworks, offer different shortcuts, you know, data pipelines and other infrastructures that are basically how you, you know, develop and train a model. Um, and, you know, PyTorch is, you know, and they also allow the companies that, you know, they're, they're open source. So they're not like owned by the companies, but their core developers are, paid for by the company is very common in open source software as well. If you have sort of, you know, a strategically important open source project, you hire one of the core maintainers, right? Like Google had an open, yeah, I was, you know, I was in the open source program office under the technical infrastructure group for like 11 years at Google. So this was kind of where I, where I lived and you would hire, you know, you basically hire the people who are maintaining this because one, you want to be able to influence its direction and two, you want to make sure it's still maintained because volunteer labor doesn't always work for free, right? So, you know, in both um, Meta and Google's case, you know, the core maintainers are hired, allowing them, you know, kind of to steer the direction of, you know, how these frameworks look, how they work, and and how AI development works inside these companies. And of course, in academic labs, you know, across the board, anyone developing it. This also allows them to make sure that any model developed with their framework can plug right into their proprietary infrastructure. So, you know, kind of the metaphor of the Lego, right? Like we make sure the interface of a new model, say developed in an academic lab, can plug right into Meta's infrastructure. We can make that sort of production ready very quickly. So it allows them, pardon me, a significant advantage in terms of, you know, making sure that they can quickly deploy those models in Meta's case they can pick and choose from, you know, what's coming out of labs, what's coming out of, you know, startups, you know, most startups aren't developing their own AI, they're just sort of, you know, making an API call to, you know, Azure or something, but um, nonetheless, um, and in Google's case, they can also have sort of on ramps to these frameworks from their compute offerings. So they, you know, they, they sell the compute they have a cloud business, so they sell the computational infrastructure for third parties to sort of, you know, train or calibrate AI systems, and they can sort of, you know, ensure that TensorFlow as a framework is, you know, kind of integrated nicely into those, thus, you know, in- enriching their cloud business. Now, when you come to sort of CUDA, that's a compiler level software that is um, proprietary to NVIDIA. And at this point, we don't have like an open source alternative, but it is, you know, it does show how like you know, how deep these, these affordances go and how shallow kind of claims of openness are when you begin to dig into, you know, the, the many layers of infrastructural dependency and, you know, how very few of them are, are, you know, actually kind of actually open in any sense that would imply a level playing field or imply kind of, you know, a million flowers bloom or, you know, any of the 
traditional ideological and kind of value propositions of open source software. I want to just note as well, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that like, unless you, you know, for the most part, unless you're actively working on building these models, like if you, you, you probably aren't aware of like what PyTorch or TensorFlow are or the role that they play in the ecosystem, which is why I think it has also like been so ignored in a lot of the critical analysis, which tends to focus on things like data and compute, which honestly you can un- understand in a much more like abstract and outs and like external kind of degree, because like, th- like these things are really get in, like these are internal features that you would not really know about unless you worked on doing this work. But, and so I really value that analysis in, in this paper. And I also want to mention as well that something like CUDA, which as you say, you know, that's a closed source proprietary um, you know, platform API gives direct access to the G- to NVIDIA's GPUs. And so it's like really become this core part of doing this kind of, you know, compute AI intensive work where everything is about, you know, these NVIDIA GPUs. And so if you're, if you're working with NVIDIA GPUs, you're, you're doing it through CUDA. Um, and, and, and I've, I've read more detailed financial analysis of NVIDIA where we think of them, you know, they're now a trillion dollar company and they've been a huge winner over the last couple of years of this AI boom. They are, they are the choke point for AI creation. Uh, you know, they, they, you can't get GPUs out fast enough from NVIDIA. Um, and so they're, they're the real winner here because they are at a crucial choke point. And we tend to think of them as a hardware company, right? They make graphic processing units, but, in reality, um, a lot of their value comes from the fact that they created this proprietary software um, that's that is that now everybody uses to build on their GPUs. And so, Nvidia is just as much a uh, a software company as it is a hardware company um, because of this like real like as you said this compiler level you know piece of software that they built um as a you know they initially just built it at because there wasn't a lot of other tools out there for um using these gpus which at that time were just used for like building video games not ai models and so they did it out of this necessity um you know out out of a business necessity for their core hardware uh, uh business but now it has become this like absolutely crucial aspect uh, that has allowed for NVIDIA to lock people into their hardware. In the, you know, kind of research labs and the academic world, which is, you know, let's be clear, like bolted to the side of large tech when it comes to AI, like you can't do this research without these affordances. So it's, you know, there's almost, you know, the the osmotic layer is very thin um, and, you know, permeable. Um, But you know, you see instructions on AI development that presents this as, you know, how it's done, right? Not how NVIDIA created it, not the contingencies of these sort of, you know, companies and their choices and the political economic pressures that they were navigating, but this is how it works, right? This is how you do it. And so the, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a way that, you know, these are invisibilized and naturalized and, you know, kind of, you have not just no material analysis, but you have a dematerialized narrative that has allowed, you know, a lot of the people who are coming out of these AI, you know, programs as, you know, developers and and practitioners 
to actually sort of not know a lot of these facts or not be sensitive to the facts that each one of these was an authorial choice. It was made, you know, like NVIDIA created this, but it's now, you know, it's now the infrastructure by which this is done. And if they changed it, it would actually sort of, you know, perturb an entire, you know, um, ecology that has grown up, you know, on top of and around it um, because it has become so fundamental so quickly and so naturalized so quickly. Um, so I think it's, you know, this is, this is shaped what we call AI, right? We, there is like very little kind of reflexive engagement with the contingencies of, of these systems. And I think, again, that's, that's, you know, that's an admixture of this sort of, you know, infrastructural dominance we're calling kind of monopolization intelligence and, you know, this sort of narrative work that has been done to kind of really kind of distract from the fact that what we're talking about is kind of you know, extraordinarily powerful social control in the hands of a few companies. Um, but it's going under the name AI. It's going under this sort of naturalized, like this is just what innovation did in this in this era. This is what we do because, you know, science always moves up and to the right. And right now we're sort of up at the top of the right of science, having finally cracked intelligence. Yeah. And and I will say as well that I am, you know, I am employed uh, within a faculty of information technology, which has a department of data science and AI. And there are whole courses that are essentially just how to use PyTorch, how to use TensorFlow. Like it is part of the core educational offerings of if you're getting a degree, um, undergraduate or postgraduate in this subject, you're taking core courses on um, these frameworks on how to properly use them. Yeah. And I'm sure like they get a lot of funding. There's like, you know, pedagogical tools from meta there's, you know, all, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I saw that at NYU and I saw it kind of grow very rapidly at NYU as well. You know, in this paper and in your work before you've also, uh, you know, talked about some of the constricting factors for actually getting things of value out of it and that compute is increasingly and prohibitively expensive, you know, and, and I've been, you know, curious and working on and thinking through, I think similar to how you were annoyed with, with Babbage and a lot of ideas about related to or coming out of it. I feel like I've been growing related, uh, relatedly frustrated with the ways in which we kind of talk about, uh, what is sustaining the tech bubble or not sustaining the tech bubble. You know, there've been a lot of arguments I've seen increasingly that, you know, since tech stocks have rebounded and since there hasn't been a permanent deflation, there wasn't a bubble that because a lot of these firms are realizing increased revenues that there's not a bubble because the, the, the valuations are, are now accurate, you know, predictions of future income. But it also seems to me in a lot of the materialist analyses, both of the, those companies and also increasingly of like AI industry, as you've laid out here, that, uh, a lot of this feels like, you know, uh, I don't, uh, an Ouroboros almost where that uh, the valuations are sustained by uh, consumption and by revenue internal to the network because it's necessary to keep growing it, to sustain the hype, uh, to rationalize spending this much money on training and on scaling and to in, in, in hopes in an industry wide kind of hope feels almost like a silent collusion to like get to offload, you know, these products and, and onto vendors, onto militaries, onto health departments, onto any entity that's willing uh, to take them on. So I'm, so I'm curious, you know, as, as you're looking at like the material aspects of, of, you know, these, of scaling, of training, of deploying these models, I mean, do you also get the sense that, you know, 
whatever we might call the larger tech sector, whether it's a bubble or a bunch of bubbles, that a large influx here, a large factor is, you know, the way in which money is spent and the political economy of who spends money and where the money goes for creating artificial intelligence, for creating the infrastructure uh, and, and, and the ownership of computation in artificial intelligence for deciding like what the labor processes look like. I mean, is, is, do these things feel connected from what you've been seeing and researching? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot about this, you know, it, there's clearly a bubble, right? The kinds of hype we're seeing is just, you know, it's, it's noxious. It's wild. It's, yeah. you know, like we'll, we'll have all have our cricket. personal pet AI <laughs> yeah. and they'll whisper to us like a God on our shoulder, you know, like uh, we <laughs> talked about inflection. A We did a whole episode <laughs> on inflection AI, the fucking <laughs> Reed Hoffman and deep mind new startup. I just, I, we're all going to have our own AI and our, our own data center and our own precarious data labelers. That'll make sure, um, I don't, I, you know, I, like a wave of like middle-aged exhaustion just hit me sort of thinking about it. There's a, there's a tedium that makes it difficult to fight head on or even want to engage because they just have so many resources and, you know, the war of attrition is so real. So I do, you know, I do think like in a, in a big way, like when crypto was, you know, you know, hit the pyramid scheme inflection point and then you know sunk to the bottom of the ocean you had a lot of money floating around and a lot of you know folks looking for something else to hype because of course you know as as you both have spoken on and as you've written on you know like like the vc cycle needs hype right if you're gonna hit an ipo or an acquisition it needs to be hyped enough for everyone to cash out right so that's a you know that is a core infrastructure of you know venture funding since the you know the netscape ipo and i think you know, 1997 that kind of set that model on fire. And then here we are. Um, So, you know, there is hype. But what I don't know is how, you know, if if this is hyped, this is some kind of bubble, like, is it going to burst in any way that matters that gives any relief? And I don't, I don't actually know the answer to that. Because I what I think is that a lot of the hype is around selling this to, you know, kind of creating a complacent public creating people who can feel a sense of excitement about technologies that are effectively technologies of labor and social control, full stop. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to be interesting how the kind of alchemy of the ongoing Writers Guild of America and Screen Actors Guild strike that has sort of, you know, I think like polluted, like the, the image of AI is now a bit rancid, right? Like one, you know, GPT, the, the party trick is over. We're seeing usage falling Two, like, you know, the, the funny people and the hot people are all dragging AI, right? So, you know, there's something like, there's something cultural going on there. But, you know, then we look at these companies and you're like, what can perturb corporations that, you know, provide the infrastructure for government that have already sort of infiltrated our core social and political infrastructures, and that have this kind of perfect recipe for social and labor control, which they call AI, right? Which is this sort of, you know, like, like this is Babbage on steroids, right? It's, you know, we're going to deploy these systems in ways that surveil you, that, you know, have more authority to know your consciousness than you do, that are, you know, kind of predicting your behavior and that, you know, are providing, you know, Jathan is, you know, you've written like, you know, these sort of calibrated scores that are uncontestable yet sort of shape your place in life. Like that is a 
those are, that's the dream that we've seen kind of, you know, develop since, you know, before Babbage, there's, you know, we have state statistics, we have ways of sort of like, how do we classify and place people and naturalize their placements so that inequality is biological destiny per our rubric, right? Like full stop. And now we have, you know, we have these very uh, resource intensive, you know, I don't know, sophisticated seems like a compliment, but like these, you know, these powerful systems that do that. And I don't know if like bubble popping is actually going to sort of allay our fears about those systems. Although the sort of, you know, once they're entrenched, I'm sure the image can tarnish safely and these companies won't mind. Yeah, that's what I've been feeling, right? That I feel like we've moved past the point where deflating the asset prices matters because they're like, this is much larger. This is an attempt to reshift, you know, the foundational political economy of a lot of industries or sectors, whether or not there would be an actual transformation a genuine productive transformation. There can be like a transformation to sh- tilt the the the, pa- the balance of power in politics in their favor if they're able to convince people they should integrate these tools and services at scale throughout the entire um, you know system. And yeah, you know, increasingly I feel like yeah, getting feeling frustration because the. Our, our focus on the bubble, of, of a thing I've fallen for as well, I think, is like also kind of underestimated or understated how big of a of a transformational threat this is in terms of power relations, right? And in terms, and as as you've been articulating very clearly, right? I mean, these are people who, you know, if they had the world that they want, you know, it would be a world that would be uglier and more violent and more divisive than the world that you know we've been struggling to get away from from the past 200 years with all realms realms of social control and finely tuned violence to support the social control and i think like speaking about it or it's felt to me like talking about it as the bubble has made it feel like you know if only like the right intervention you know or reform is is rolled out or maybe the right economic market correction happens it goes away and not like that these people have like the you know part of what is dangerous here is they have they are the only ones with the resources they are the only ones who with their hands on the lever and a lot of ins- a lot of these institutions they've won a lot of the ideological battles they've won a lot of the legal battles like it is it is it's far gone it's very far gone mm-hmm. and i think you know a lot of this bubble rhetoric isn't for the people who will use it Right. It's not for the studio execs or the militaries or the police forces or the, you know, large, you know, Ubers of the world. It's for, you know, the rest of us, the people on whom this will be used because it's, you know, uh, you know, isn't it better for us to be sort of excited and starry eyed and feel a little bit intimidated and perhaps not educated enough to criticize these super powerful machines we don't quite understand um, so I, you know, I think having been not in those rooms in any capacity, but the kind of nearer than um, most folks like me get um, to some of, you know, it's it's much balder, you know, it's like, oh, is this, this is going to help us cut 70% of mm. our workforce? Oh, well, okay. Okay. That sounds uh, really innovative. <laughs> Right, um, and and I mean to that point as well. I don't know if you have both seen, but like you know, two days ago or yes, I guess yesterday, um, for for you guys in the U.S., uh, Chat G- uh, OpenAI announced uh, ChatGPT Enterprise, right? And so they they've just they've just announced and, and rolled out ChatGPT Enterprise, which they you know the 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 
this uh, slogan, you know, the slug line here is get enterprise grade security and privacy and the most powerful version of chat GPT yet. Uh, and in the blog post about it, right, they one of the things they specifically mention um, is that you own and control your business data in chat GPT enterprise, we do not train on your business data or conversations, and our models don't learn from your usage, right. And so like, this is, you know, th this is the real business model here is the enterprise system. And they are uh, intentionally trying to allay, um, the, the fears that like, you know, you're putting proprietary, you know, corporate in information into, into chat GPT and open AI sucks it up. Right. And so there's like, no, like these are siloed models for each enterprise account. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, we, we should wrap up. Uh, and I think this, this feels like a good place to, to do it, but I, I would love to just get your, your real time reaction to, um, to the, the enterprise grade security and privacy offerings of, uh, of chat GPT. <laughs> I feel like I want to rewrite that just as, you know, like PSA to anyone who's ever used regular chat GPT. <laughs> you have uh, very little security or privacy. We're trading on your data. Uh, if we wanted to, we could buy data from data brokers to then, you know, match your prompt data and, you know, login data and identity with other data about you and use that to, you know, further, I don't know, make, make predictions and, and sell you things, right? Like, I think it's, you know, the fact that this is sort of a a feature people should pay for and not expectation about how these systems work, again, I think speaks to just the really unfortunate way that we lost, uh, we didn't keep our eye on the ball when kind of the, the commercialization and, and sort of construction of the surveillance business model was happening. And thus, you know, that is the norm. And we have to pay for like a little bit of relief, right? I mean, we yeah. And, and I think, you know, this is the, you know, these are tools that will be used on us, not by us. They will be used by enterprises, institutions, you know, governments. They are not, you know, ultimately these are not our tools, uh, I guess is the, the short version. And then I just, you know, my reaction is also like, this is classic Microsoft. They cannot stay away from an enterprise lock-in business model. So, you know, again, yeah. proving that open AI is a really, uh, like we need to just start calling it Microsoft. I, I know. I like how you yes. call it the, the Microsoft Division Open AI because that's exactly what it is. And, and this is <laughs> this is right. I mean, like you know, we said on the show ages ago um, that like this is the business model for ChatGPT. It's a Microsoft Office suite model. Uh, it's the um, the integration of these things into these you know, off productivity tools and office software and the rollout of things like an enterprise system for chat GPT. Like that's all it is. There's nothing new here. There's nothing disruptive. It's like, it's the model that has made Microsoft so fabulously wealthy for, um, you know, four decades now is buying someone else's technology and then maintaining control over it. Right. Like, I don't like go back to the history of software. Right. We talk about bad, is the history of hardware like i don't think most people realize that like 
MS-DOS was not some creation of Bill Gates. MS-DOS was a operating DOS was an operating system that Bill Gates licensed from some other Seattle company and then turned around and sold it at a con- on a major contract for Intel's uh, new P- uh, uh, PC offering, right? So it's like like the whole software that Microsoft is built on was software that Bill Gates bought from someone else and then commercialized and monetized. And like, that's Microsoft's whole model, right? Like this is what they're now doing with open AI. Like, you know, but they, they, they come in after the fact um, and they, they build the gardens uh, and they, they build the, the toll booths and everything. And they extract all of the monopoly rents from the software. I love how out of one side of their mouth, OpenAI is claiming that um, it's it's now too dangerous to quote unquote, you know, open source these models to make them sort of available for reuse because they're so, so powerful. We can't let them get into the hands of the bad guys. This is, you know, this is noblesse oblige. Please understand. Uh, These are simply, you know, hyper powerful systems. And then out of the other side, they're like, but if you want to sign a contract for an Azure API to use this for your enterprise, that is certainly not too dangerous. <laughs> right. Yeah. As long as you pay us. Yeah. As long Hand as- over fiscal money. Yeah. <laughs> These weapons are entirely too powerful to not be controlled by arms dealers and sold to whoever <laughs> has money to buy them. <laughs> and, and again, Jathan stills my thunder because I was going to make an allusion to Microsoft being warlords and selling out their wares to the highest builder. Y'all just got mind meld, Jeremy. <laughs> I know. Sorry. That's the, t- t- you know, t- the, the, that's the brother link right there. Jeremy thinks it and I steal it. I'm Microsoft in this regard. <laughs> Meredith, this has been uh fantastic such a great conversation i'm so glad to to have you back on the show um and to be able to talk about not one but two uh fabulous and fantastic articles so um it's just a a joy as always I, i i honestly i say this with uh with with all honesty i think one of the best and most important thinkers on these topics, not to mention a, 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 a tireless advocate and activist. So Meredith, thank you so much. Um, is there anything you would like to, to plug or direct people's attention to besides the two papers? No, it's just been such a delight to be here. Um, and if I think of anything to plug, it'll probably be someone else's work. Um, you know, you should read Ed's columns in the nations. I don't, know how he's getting away with it but they're <laughs> fabulous and you know whatever whatever you did more keep, coming out soon it'll be cooking. fun um and you know read jathan's jathan's recent insurtech paper just knocks it out of the park um really good and i think actually like kind of fundament for a lot of this conversation right the like the you know the desire to control and assess people and figure out mm-hmm. their literal value has a long history and it, it's just encapsulated beautifully. And maybe Jeremy, you could post some of your music, which I actually haven't heard, but um, people should check that out probably as well. 
Well, I, I do. Uh, I do. By the end of the year, have an instrumental album that I will be putting on Bandcamp. I haven't announced it yet, so I might as well just go ahead and do that now. Oh hell the yeah! First track yeah. on it. The first track on it, I just put on my uh, SoundCloud, and it was featured on a recent episode in its entirety. So I'm gonna probably right, well, start doing that again. And that that post rock track, I listen to that on repeat while I'm uh, while I'm writing now. It's so it's so good. So you you know we're all looking forward to that album. Thank you so much again, Meredith. And everyone else can of course find us at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, and so yeah, until next time, later. Adios. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,